Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on Tap, we have Spider-Man, starring Tobey Maguire, Kirsten Dunst, Willem Dafoe, James Franco, directed by Sam Raimi. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films as we unveil film two in our superhero cask titled With Great Power Part One. Today we're going to be talking all about Spider-Man from 2002. And Matt, what are we we drinking today? So we've opened up a new bottle. This is 1792. It's a single barrel select from Total Wine. Um, We haven't really tried this one yet. So as first drive for you, I'm curious what your thoughts are. That's pretty good. It's got a... A little more like stinging, like first taste, but then it settles in nicely after that. So a little more complex at the beginning. At some point, we're going to have to go back and look at all the bourbons we've drank mm-hmm. and like start ranking them too. There we go. Because the last bottle we had was uh, the Jefferson's Reserve, I think, was up there for me. Mm-hmm. That Clyde Mays was really good. Yeah, the rye. And then what was the one that we finished um, last week-ish? Oh, geez. What was that? That was the... Um... It wasn't Woodford Reserve. I'll have to go back and check. But we should do a flight ranking of all the bourbons thus far. Yeah, we should. That'd be pretty cool. So before we get started today, we have a lot to talk about with this film. And I'm I, I'm very excited. I'm sure you are too, Matt. Absolutely. But uh, we have a little bit of housekeeping first. Uh, we'd like to first update you on all the different uh, podcast sites that we are currently available on. So as of today, we are on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts for you Android users out there, Podbean, YouTube, with it's, it's a video that has the audio file in it, uh, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn. So whatever your preferred site is to listen to podcasts, you know we're available and out there, so go subscribe and let your friends and family know too. And the, one of the things that w- w- would help uh, other people find it just on a whim is if you're on iTunes... You know, one of the ways that podcasts get bumped up is by uh, rating and throwing a review. So if you're liking what you're hearing, you know, just go to your iTunes, type in a little review, rate us however you want, and um, help other people find the podcast. That'd be greatly appreciated from us. It would us. be greatly appreciated, yes. So next, I also want to highlight uh, a viewer response from Nate the Great Nerd in response to our uh, superhero television question from our Shazam episode last week. And, you know, we asked what's the best live action a superhero show um, out there and Nate had a pretty interesting answer it's a fairly new show and it was uh, the Umbrella Academy which is currently streaming on Netflix and he wanted to highlight mostly how it presents the characters and story and the family relationship between that group dynamic so a little Fantastic Four and X-Men but all done with a creative twist so I actually haven't seen that show yet I want to I haven't, I'm not really familiar with that comic book either, but I think that's a pretty different choice compared to what we were talking about. Yeah, indeed. A lot more contemporary. Excellent. So thank you for that, Nate. And uh, let's get right to it. So this is a flight question that this might be the best question we've come up with, and it's tripped me up all week thinking about it. So there's been a lot of casting decisions made for superheroes, some tailor-made for their parts, some a little unorthodox, but it works out for the better. Uh, The flight question for this week, Matt, is what are the top three best casting choices in comic book movies? And we'll do your third, my third, etc. So I think we decided we were going to do 
a hero, a villain, and a sidekick. Correct. Let's so, let's do the side character first. Side character first. This is a strange entry, um, but after a lot of thought, I think I'm okay with it. Okay. And it's actually from Wonder Woman, Ooh. and it's Chris Pine as Steve Trevor. Oh, nice. Mostly because I think one of the tricky parts in that film was how they were going to handle the love element between Wonder Woman and Steve. Mm-hmm. And I thought that it was handled brilliantly. Uh, I, a lot of people have very high opinion of that film, and I think you and I mostly do for about 75 to 80% mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. But my favorite part of that movie is watching the two of them sort of watch what that grows into and what it ends up becoming. And yeah. I think he aptly and capably played Mm -hmm. a strong resolute yet completely undermanned character when it came to who he was sidekicking Mm -hmm. for but yet a really good performance and that speaks to in a weird way Mm -hmm. chris pine yeah i'm a chris pine fan i actually like his take as captain kirk in the star trek films that and the other one there's a movie that he made uh three or four years ago Mm -hmm. z for zachariah Mm -hmm. which i really wanted to see and i missed it and i missed it and then i finally caught it He's pretty damn good in that too. Yeah. Um, so yeah, for me, it's Chris Pine is Colonel Steve Trevor. Nice, no, that's a good one. He has one of the best lines in that movie too. It's right before he's gonna get on the plane to you know get that those that, those bombs out of there, and he says, "I can save today. You can save the fu- tomorrow or the future." Mm-hmm. However, however, he says like, that's a very powerful line because like he he understands that the plan is is bigger than himself, and Wonder Woman's you know more viable future than what he can offer so he has to make that sacrifice that's a good choice thank you number three for me is actually from the film we're going to be talking about today and he had a a couple more times to play the part two it's going to be jk simmons as j jonah jameson no doubt perfect and the second his scene comes on screen and we're actually going to have a sound clip in it for this episode he just jumped from the comic book pages to real life. Any time you'd read Jameson in the panels and he's yelling and being berating everybody, you saw that in this little two-minute bit. Like it was, it was so fascinating to watch. And he's good in the first one. He's great in the second one. He's really good in that third one too. I think the future Spider-Man movies with Garfield and Tom Holland actually suffer a little bit with the lack of J. Jonah Jameson. Uh, Jameson's such a foil for Spider-Man and actually kind of the the thorn in his side. And we haven't seen that with these other Spider-Men. So I I attribute that a lot to J.K. Simmons' performance. You know, one of the things that really works in Spider-Man is when he's not Spider-Man, when he's Peter Parker, essentially the rogues gallery that they've created for him Mm -hmm. in that space. And his boss is one of them. Yep. And what's so great about the way that's delivered is it's his boss who's paying him to basically undo what he can't reveal. Yeah. And that's just so layered. And J.K. Simmons, from his mustache to the high and tight haircut, uh, the gruff attitude. Look, we don't have to say any more about what a fantastic actor J.K. Simmons mm-hmm. is. That's not news to anybody. Yeah. Uh, but he's terrific in that role. That's a great choice. Yeah, excellent. All right, what do you want to do next? Do you want to do villain or hero? Let's do villain. Okay. Go ahead. Okay, so my choice is almost from this movie. Okay. Okay. It'd be the second version of this movie. Okay. So you know where I'm going. Yes. Alfred Molina as Doc Ock. From body type to the doofy, brainiac, forgettable man on the street that Otto sort of is. Boy, I can't think of a 
better choice. And what I love about the Casanat is it's real easy to go with the guy that's got the best abs or the squarest jaw or the best haircut or whatever it might be. Yeah. Alfred Molina's none of those things. Oh, no, yeah. And that's why that character fits so well for me. Uh, he's... There's a there's a lot in this. Like we could there's a lot of great villains. There's yeah. a lot of bad ones too. Mm-hmm. Lee Pace, mm-hmm. the accuser. But anyway, <laughs> there's a lot of bad ones. Yeah. But for me, if I was going to want to see the villain that I knew as a kid growing up that yeah. tormented Spider Man, and like there's a lineup of actors, mm-hmm. that'd be the guy I'd pick out. It's I think it's perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's good, and and I think his the backstory they build in that movie makes him all the more sympathetic and yet yeah. tragic yeah and you kind of get a little bit about why he's going about the way he's going about things it's a great choice i i, I really like that cat and unorthodox for sure sure all right my number two you know yeah, we could sing the praises of a lot of great villains from heath ledger to josh brolin as thanos like this was the hardest one for me and i'm going a little outside of the box too this is someone who doesn't i think get credit where credit is due and as much as I like Ian McKellen as Eric Lencher Magneto, I think he is bested by Michael Fassbender as the same character, the younger version. Uh, we've gotten to see three iterations and now a fourth coming up of this character. And I think we really understand his struggle of, of mutant kind. I mean, he, them staging his backstory in the Holocaust and being at the will of men just taking orders is primarily why he doesn't want to like be subject mutant kind to the same type of treatment and i love that brilliant scene in first class when he's throwing the rockets back at the you know the the russian and yeah. the united states forces and through the reflection of uh deflecting of bullets he actually paralyzes his best friend yeah. charles xavier and that's a real powerful moment and they go on separate paths at that point but i think michael fassbender really gives a great performance in all three of those movies Look, the truth is, old X-Men and young X-Men, mm-hmm. both of those two characters, Xavier and Magneto, mm-hmm. Eric Lyncher, are both done brilliantly well at both different stages mm-hmm. in their development. Mm-hmm. I'm not stealing, I hope I'm not stealing your thunder <clears throat> nope. for the hero. No good. Because it's not my choice either. But Patrick Stewart versus James McAvoy, mm-hmm. Ian McKellen versus Michael Fassbender, the progression of time and what they would look like aged from current actor to aged it's really, really well done. Yeah. Patrick Stewart and James McAvoy, yeah, that's that's what Professor Xavier would look like. Yeah, I almost wanted to pick James because I think James McAvoy is a great casting choice too as young Charles Xavier. Yeah, but I've always been a Magneto fan. Sure, and you know Michael Fassbender was still kind of relatively unknown when he was cast in that, so kind of an unorthodox choice. But yeah, I think it's kind of really paid off. So, all right, the heroes. What this you- this was hard for me. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, the Spider-Man element is going to come in discussion, but I purposely did not allow myself to do that because that's just picking such low-hanging fruit with sure. the podcast this week. But okay. I had three that it came down to. Okay. Benedict Cumberbatch is Doctor Strange. Okay. Paul Rudd is Ant-Man. Okay. And Kristen Ritter is Jessica Jones. Okay. Now, I know that's not technically a movie, so that gave me an easy out to remove her, but she was definitely in there. Sure. Those other two, I don't know if I can say one versus the other. Okay. I think the... Um, the comedic element of Scott Lang is portrayed really well by Paul Rudd. Mm-hmm. I think the elitism is portrayed really well by Benedict Cumberbatch. And frankly, what doesn't that guy play well? So, exactly. Yeah. 
So I guess it maybe comes down to preference for me and which of those two films do I like better. Sure. And that's also a really tough question for mm-hmm. me to answer. Yeah. By a whisper. Mm-hmm. I mean by a whisper. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with Cumberbatch as Doctor Strange. Okay. Yeah, he just fun. looks exactly like what Doctor Strange looked like. Yeah. And for as obscure and as irrelevant at times as Ant-Man can be mm-hmm. in the comics, but matters in the movie and they've done a good job with yeah, it. Yeah. Doctor Strange is the same sort of character. Exactly. It's so mystic, it's almost not really relatable. Yeah, Doctor Strange almost borders on like B-list, like heading into C-list almost. It's like, getting down there. Yeah. Which is really kind of crazy because he's very powerful. Mm-hmm. But Benedict Cumberbatch, by a whisper, mm-hmm. over Paul Rudd for me. Yeah, I think he yeah he, make, he makes that happen in that film. And I think even so in Infinity War, you know, they gave him a bigger role to... Well, not a bigger role. He had his own film, but like he had a substantial role in that film, and I think he played off of Robert Downey Jr.'s like sarcasm very well. Yeah, to the point where they, you know, they kind of come together towards the end there, before it all kind of shit hits the fan. Yeah, no, that's a good performance. I'm a fan of Cumberbatch as an actor. You know, he. Yeah, you're right. What? When does he not give a bad performance? Yeah. So again, I had a, I had a hard time with this one too. You know, anything from Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark to. You know, I really wanted to pick Michael Keaton because... To as, Finn Jones as Iron Fist? Oh, good. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Michael Keaton as Batman just because you... Michael Keaton almost has to put on the Batman suit to be intimidating based mm-hmm. on his physique. But I went with, I think, the most fairly obvious one. And I think it's the one when they eventually get around to recasting. They're going to have a damn hard time replacing this actor. Yeah. That's Hugh Jackman as Logan slash Wolverine. Yeah. Talk about an unknown, un- unnamed actor who kind of got thrust into that movie when they were already filming. I think I told you, Duggery Scott was cast as Wolverine, and he decided he had to do Mission Impossible 2 reshoots instead. Whoops. Yeah, that movie blows too. Uh, so they brought in unknown Hugh Jackman theater actor, mm-hmm. and the rest is history. I, he played it like seven or eight times. You know, he had the look down perfect. I know Wolverine in the comics is a little more short stature, like 5'7", five, 5'6". I don't care. Like, Jackman and personifies and embodies that character. And he became the face of that X-Men franchise. Like, that's a very important casting. And damn, Marvel, when they reboot it, they're going to have a hard time, like, making us forget Hugh. His best line in that hall of all those iterations, mm-hmm. go fuck yourself. Mm-hmm. So, just Wolverine yep. to the letter. Yeah, I think he nailed that one. Yeah, he sure did. That's a great choice. Yeah, those, I- are, those are great. It's hard. We left, I left, we left a lot on the table. Like, Oh, yeah. People are like, why didn't you pick like the Joker? Like, well, because he's had his due in his conversation. I wanted to talk about Magneto today. It's funny. I picked two from Fox's X Men franchise. What's that's that's kind of interesting. So, for all the things that that franchise has been and hasn't been, yeah, I don't think it suffered from poor casting choices. No, I don't. I don't think so. Like, Brian Reynolds is Deadpool. I mean, he was put on this earth to play that part. I would even give you. Uh, people may freak out on this, but I even think Liev Schreiber is a pretty good saber tooth. Mm. Um, that movie is a bit troubled. Yeah, but um, yeah, I mean, like January Jones is the first Emma Frost. Yep. Kevin Bacon's role, like it's just been cast really, really well. It like I'm, to that though. Mm-hmm. Just on a side note, sure. Who's a better Emma Frost? Because if you're an X Men fan, you know how the importance of that character. Do you see more Jessica Chastain, or do you see more January Jones, or is it sort of the time element that we're playing with that we talked about with like Fassbender maybe that. and McKellen. Maybe that. Yeah. I think so too. I think we get the best of both worlds with that one. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. So it's happy hour time. Let's get to what we're here for. Let's get to our review of Spider-Man. 
What is Spider-Man? Are you sure you want to know? The story is not for the faint of heart. If someone told you it was a happy tale without a troubled road to production, somebody lied. This is all about Spider-Man, created in 1962 by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. And in 2002, we finally got the first feature film adaptation of The Web Slinger, which was probably a monumental day for you as it was for myself. So before we get into the story, Matt, can you um, let the listeners know what it was like to see this film for the first time? So there's two parts of the story for me. So the first would be the first trailer. Okay. And what that was like. So I wasn't as privy to the information about what was coming then as I am now. I just mm-hmm. didn't study as much. So that trailer hit me cold and I had no idea. There was there was plenty of information about production. I just didn't follow it. Sure, yeah. So when that came along, I remember sitting there thinking to myself, this is really going to happen. And I know you're <clears throat> going to get into this later with the foibles and the missteps of the Spider-Man legacy. Yeah. For that to occur, because Marvel on the... <laughs> the heels of bankruptcy mm-hmm. and being rescued by Blade of all yeah. franchises. But okay, well, and I'm sure we'll get into that later here too. Mm-hmm. It is so probable that that movie never hit the screen. And I didn't think I was going to see it. Because I got to tell you, in 2002, mm-hmm. superheroes are cool now. Mm-hmm. They were not then. No, like I would go to the comic book store on Wednesdays to get my pull from my boxes and I had to be really kind of quiet and I kind of looked around before I walked in the comic book store because it was not what it is now. Yeah. So when it hit the screen, it was like the, the trailer. It was a moment of like, this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And the countdown literally began for me. Yeah. So I'm there opening night. We had tickets uh, to, I think, a five o'clock showing. And I had a Spider-Man t-shirt on. I had... Uh, my Spider-Man socks on. And that was about the best I had back then. I wasn't too sure I was going to push the envelope too much because it was still in the neighborhood of like, well, this is kind of Dorkville. Yeah. And I was going with Denise. Mm-hmm. So you have to maintain some element of yeah, whatever yeah. is not so uncompelling in uh-huh. her eyes. Yeah. I was so happy when that film came. Mm-hmm. Um, the the title sequence rolled. The theater stood up and applauded. Um, rarely does a movie move me mid credits mm-hmm. toward the hair standing up on my arms. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was life changing for me of all the films in my life that I've ever wanted to see. Mm-hmm. And that includes empire strikes back. Yeah. And that includes return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. Spider-Man was number one. Oh yeah. It was 2002. Yep. 29 years old. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. And, uh, nice. It delivered. So yeah, it and we saw it that day, and yeah. we went and saw it again on Sunday. That's awesome. I think I saw that movie four times in the theater. Nice. And it was great every single time. Excellent. How I'd about like, for you? I'd like to reiterate, you know, the first time I saw the trailer. So, you know, it's back, you know, when the internet's not as hugely popular, and we certainly didn't have it in my household. So, going to see trailers was actually one of my favorite parts of going to the movies. Sure. Because I got to see what was coming out. Right. So, I'm sitting there before Jurassic Park 3, of all films. And the trailers go, and it's actually... Um, this bank robbery scene mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i was like what is this and it's you're not really clear and then they escape by helicopter and then it stops midair and it gets like pulled back yep and then they get stuck and then the camera pans back and the helicopter's stuck in a web between the world trade center it's a cool image and then as soon as i saw the web and it pulled back i was like no way and then it went through like a spider-man montage and like that was 
July and it said May. I'd wait a whole year for that to come out. But same thing. I was like so ready for that to to happen. And that trailer is interesting because Hollywood just does not do this anymore. But in the 80s and 90s, it was kind of all the rage. They would do special shoot trailers. So they almost look like Pepsi commercials. They don't feature any footage from the film. And um, it's just to advertise, you know, the movie. Another, some other examples are uh, the first Terminator 2 trailers of the Terminator assembly line. It's not in the film. They yeah. just shot it. And then uh, the Roland Emmerich Godzilla from 98 featured, like, Godzilla's foot coming down on, like, a T-Rex skeleton in a museum. Uh, that's not in the film either. But they would, with the skeleton crew, make these trailers. But I thought this one was damn cool. And if you haven't seen it, you can find it on YouTube still. But obviously, you know, after September 11th, that trailer got pulled the poster got pulled with the reflection in his eye of the the World Trade Center, but you know, kind of like you, I was I was ready to see this thing. And when it was opening night, we went open. We might have been in the same theater, not even known it. At our local theater there, which is a, a twenty four screen theater, it's yeah. pretty big. I've never waited in a longer line to see a movie. The right. anticipation was a fever pitch. And as we've talked about, this was the first film to gross a hundred million in its opening weekend. Like staggering numbers showing up to see this we were there two plus hours early just to get in line you had to you couldn't yeah. reserve seats back then right yep and i didn't mind yeah and it was conversations i had with the other spider files and the lines around me it was great that's it fun a memorable memorable night for sure excellent so let's get into the story now yeah. a little bit so we open up with i think a very great introduction to peter parker and you know he's Close. doing a version of the voice he's doing the voiceover that i did to open up the this part of the podcast and you know we see mary jane and then flash thompson and then some like doofus like crony and the introduction we get of spider-man is actually through the reflection of the school bus him trying to catch it running i i thought be done brilliantly to show even the disrespect that the camera has for the Peter Parker character. Yeah. It can't even have be a close up. It's like through a reflection of him like struggling. I think it, through that you you understand this version of Peter Parker. Yeah, and from him like stopping the bus and getting on and tripping, you kind of get why the eye rolls from the people in the bus are such like, "Oh, it's Parker and here we go again." Mhm. Mm and it speaks to what works in the Spider-Man legacy, and that's this guy has no business being in charge of everybody's safety. Mm -hmm. And then as dismissed, mm -hmm. and I would say kind of roundly disliked as he is from time to time, mm -hmm. what a terrible, terrible price that he has to pay to just sort of shoulder all that. And he can't even say, I know you like me when I'm this, but it's really just me here. Mm -hmm. Can't do it. Yeah, That movie starts off and... Nobody will share a seat with him. And you know, like what's funny is I think it's got to be like Mike Manginello's first appearance. Oh, yeah. For, ma screen. for Magic Mike. Yep. As uh, Flash Thompson, right? Yep. Um, and he's kind of walking down the aisle. He gets tripped. Nobody helps. And like, I don't think anyone cares at that time. Mm -hmm. But I think what you said is really, really smart. And mm -hmm. that's the camera so disrespectful of the character that he doesn't even get mm -hmm. a real shot. He gets a reflective shot. Yeah. Yeah, of course you do. I think that's, yeah, done done so well. And then just played so expertly through the rest of the movie. And they're at the museum, the scene after this. And Mary Jane's kind of looking in his direction. He kind of like, oh, she's looking at me for like first time. And so he like throws a wave and like two of her friends walk by him. And she was like addressing them like, he just can't catch a break. Like there's, there's example number two. And then we're introduced to Harry Osborne and Norman Osborne and... 
you know, obviously coming from money, Norman's a respected scientist. They're pulling up to the museum in a Rolls Royce with their driver. I always like that line. But we kind of get that first introduction to the kind of the fatherly triangle of this film, which is Harry and Norman and then Norman and Peter, right. which if Norman could have picked a son, he probably would have picked Peter. He's more in line with his scientific and prowess way of thinking versus Harry is just very struggling trying to just get by. For as much as the Norman Osborn, Peter Parker, father, surrogate, son relationship has highlighted, I think one thing that's often forgotten in this franchise is the sibling rivalry mm-hmm. that's not. Mm-hmm. Because as much as Harry and Peter are best friends, a lot of that series, they're not. Mm-hmm. Whether it's Harry's drugs or him taking the mantle or finding out the role that he had in his father. And, yes. Uh, just the battle over Mary Jane. Um, there's a lot of sibling rivalry too. And again, I think this is partly why you and I appreciate this film so much in the mm-hmm. story. That all hinges on family and mm-hmm. just domestic ties within the family. And you and I both really like that. Mm-hmm. And to Stan Lee and Steve Ditko's credit, they took what's a pretty far-fetched idea mm-hmm. and grounded it with everything except the mutated super abilities mm-hmm. being very, very grounded in regret and domestic problems and teenage angst and money and super relatable problems. I'm just going to state a fact right now and I'm just throwing the hammer down. Okay. You know, I'm a Batman guy. Everyone knows that origin story. Babies in the womb already know it that aren't even born yet. Yeah. Uh, Spider-Man's origin story of the acquiring of his powers and what he tries to do with them and the consequences of all that is hands down the best superhero origin story ever. You know, the funniest thing about that too is the only reason that Amazing Fantasy was written. Stan Lee was out the door. He was leaving. That was his last comic. Yeah. And his wife said, this is the last one. Stop doing... This crap that you don't like, westerns, horror, comedy, whatever. Mm-hmm. Why don't you write a story that you want to write mm-hmm. as you leave? And Spider-Man is born in that moment. In a struggling comic. Amazing. Timely comics. Yeah. He's out. The, he's on his way out the door. And he says, yeah, you know what? This is the last one. What are they going to do? Fire me? And so he writes what he thinks a throwaway idea about a Spider-Man. And the rest is history. And it has to be Marvel's like best-selling magazine in their history like i don't think anything was as popular as spider-man like the x-men got canned after like issue like 70 or like 90 something hulk got canned after six episodes iron man cap and thor were in uh journey into mystery and tales of suspense they weren't they didn't have their own magazines for other than the fantastic four and spider-man like like spider-man went through the decades and he never got he got more magazines in fact spectacular spider-man web of spider Peter parker spider-man yeah exactly so Arguably, his the most popular character they ever created and mm-hmm. saved Marvel Comics, probably. For sure. Well, more than once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So, I actually, uh, real quick, I actually really like the casting of Willem Dafoe as Norman Osborn. Could have been John Malkovich or Nicolas Cage. Eh, no. Willem Dafoe kind of looks a little goblin-y already. Like, they didn't even need to put any armor or anything on his face. Like, he, he looks, he's got that, like, that, like, that grin and that, that nose. Like... Mm-hmm. It isn't a good casting as Norman Osborn. Deviously impish. <laughs> impish. That was on full display in Aquaman for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then, you know, Peter finally gets his moment. He's taking fi- pictures for the school paper and he finally gets to, you know, have this moment with Mary Jane where, you know, she's his model and he's taking photos. But then, oh, and behold, as fate plays its part, down comes the spider and, you know, gives him, is going to give him all the abilities of a spider. But... 
I think in the past, I think I've been too hard on Kirsten Dunst as Mary Jane. No, you haven't. Um, but this time watching it, I, I, I kind of saw more, and it's done better in the second movie for sure. Yeah. But I think I think their, their their relationship and you know the usage of that character you know works pretty well. You know, for everything that Gwen Stacy's the first love, you know, Mary Jane is the girl next door, and I think they show that you know very well. The sequence in that film when Peter and Mary Jane, although they've been neighbors for a period of time, I think have the first discussion when Mary Jane leaves her house because her parents are in the middle of some fight, Mm -hmm. I think is really well done because it shows you how we can be in such close proximity to each other and not know anything about each other Mm -hmm. and what an opportunity missed that is. Yeah. Which, to the larger whole is a lot of what the early part of Peter Parker is, the opportunity missed, the loser, the the guy who's always down on his luck, the guy who's always late for the bus, the guy who can't catch a break, as mm-hmm, you said. Mm-hmm. The girl that he's been pining for has been 30 feet away. Yeah. And it's taken him how many years to get up the stones to go and talk to her? Mm-hmm. And for all of you out there, you've all been there. Mm-hmm. She sat in front of you and sixth period in your sophomore year and world history and you just never right like everybody has that story on both sides her and him both right exactly and i think that's delivered really really well and what it does is mary jane kind of comes across a little bit uh i don't want to say bitchy that's not the right word but Mm -hmm. dismissive of him sure yeah and when they have that discussion out there in the moonlight Mm -hmm. she becomes really really grounded and you can start to sort of Mm -hmm. hitch your wagon to a character that you like yeah that role mm-hmm. that Kirsten Dunst got mm-hmm. was one of the more sought-after roles in all of Hollywood. I imagine. And yeah. you want to go back and look at some of the people that they had. Mm-hmm. Um, it's crazy that it went through as many opportunities and people and casting calls and that they settled on Kirsten Dunst. Mm-hmm. The red hair seemed to be the big issue. Mm-hmm. And she's not. She's blonde. So yeah. they had to fix that. Mm-hmm. And so that limited the amount of people that they had. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was everybody... I mean. I don't want to waste the, the readers or the listeners' times with this, but it's it's crazy the people that they chose and that had it and then walked away from it. It's weird. Sure. It's crazy for a major role. Mm-hmm. So then we kind of get the villain ploy in this film, which Norman's, you know, dabbling with performance enhancers. And, you know, they got a contract with Quest Aerospace for, yeah. you know, this glider and this suit to be used for, obviously, military purposes. or like these military generals and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's fallen behind. <laughs> Always like the line, you know, Norman's trying to make his pitch and his little crony guy next to him is like, we need to take the whole thing back to formula. And it's like, shut up. Like, mm-hmm. he's blowing the whole thing. So Norman has to jumpstart everything and test it on himself. And in a really good scene, and again, you know, we talked about last week with David Sandberg being from the horror genre and how that sneaks into pieces of Shazam. Yeah. As it does here with Sam Raimi, who has a background with... The Evil Dead and Darkman and all these films until he got to this one. I think you see that in this scene when Norman becomes the goblin. And, you know, he has those whites of his eyes and then throws him through the window. The, the quick zoom-ins and the pants. I love that part when he jumps on the table yeah. with his arms out wide. Just looks goblin Just looks goblin Yeah. I think one of the biggest missed opportunities with this film, though, and I posted it on the Instagram yeah. site this week, was they were actually going to dabble in a full goblin animatronic mask. Versus the armor that they ended up using. But there were some issues along the way with, you know, putting it on Willem's face and then how it was going to work. But damn, it does it look cool. Like It does. I think that that's a missed opportunity. Even if that's the face behind the armor. Sure. 
he just began to look a little too robotic and Robocop. Yeah. Not that it, it wasn't bad. Like, it still worked. Yeah. But um, a different... Ver- like, my introduction to the Goblin mm-hmm. was through Saturday morning or, or afternoon cartoons. Mm-hmm. And he was a lot more fluid and cloth clad, if you will. Yes, yes. And that's certainly not the case. But the armor does make sense because they're building armor for the glider mm-hmm. that the troops can use as they weaponize this glider. Mm-hmm. Like, it does make sense in context of the story. But a bit of a different take, for sure. Remember, with great power comes great responsibility. Are you afraid that I'm going to turn into some kind of criminal? Quit worrying about me, okay? Something's different. I'll figure it out. Stop lecturing me, please. I don't mean to lecture and I don't mean to preach. And I know I'm not your father. Then stop pretending to be. Right. I'll pick you up here at 10. So Jesse, since I brought up my recollection of the Goblin Mm -hmm. and where I came to with what the Goblin looked like, there's quite a a legacy of the history in this film as well. So why don't you give our listeners a look into what that story is? Well, to quote Doc Ock and Spider-Man 2, ladies and gentlemen, fasten your seatbelts because this story is insane. So, you know, it was was Spider-Man had iterations on cartoon television. I'm sure you watched Spider-Man 66. I did. And also were there for the Nicholas Hammond iteration of Spider-Man with the uh, salt and pepper shaker (laughs) on. Yeah. Technology, man. Technology. So, of course, if this is Marvel's most popular character in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, naturally you'd want to turn this into a film property, especially after Richard Donner's Superman. Like, that just seemed like a likely move. So, this is where it gets crazy. So, Canon Films in 1985, for those of you that don't know Canon Films, they were kind of like a little kind of like shoestring production company that made big budget things like kind of like on on the cheap. Superman for the Quest for Peace, uh, Missing in Action stuff with Chuck Norris. Like, their films aren't very good. So how they got Marvel's property, I don't know. But they were going to turn it in, and they totally misunderstood the character. They thought Peter turned into an actual spider with eight arms and legs. So I think Stanley and Marvel actually had to come in and say, no, 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 that's not the story. You know, you need to pump the, those brakes on that. But they were going to do a story between the mentorship of Doc Ock and Peter. And... They were going to make it for $20 million, and then that got cut down to $10 million, So, yeah, that's trying to do Spider-Man on, on a... He may as well be on CBS again. Yeah. So, yeah. this is some of the casting options they had for this. You know, this is pre-Top Gun Tom Cruise. They like Tom Cruise for Peter Parker. Bob Hoskins for Doc Ock, which, that's not bad. That would have been okay. Yeah. Stan Lee himself wanted to play J. Jonah Jameson. Jonah, yeah. And I think pretty fascinating. Lauren Bacall and or Catherine Hepburn as Aunt May. It's a solid cast. Yeah. But you can't do that for $10 million. There's just no way. Like, Well, that's what I was going to say. If you get those people on, what do you have left for effects? No, you don't. You're Nothing. Like, you're like you're like guerrilla filmmaking in the streets of New York. Oh, that, that could have been horrific. Yeah. So then that lapsed. And then Corelico Pictures acquired the rights now. So for those of you who don't know who Corelico is, go back and listen to the Basic Instinct podcast and yep. you'll get their whole history. But in 1991, they brought on someone that they were working close with, Mr. James Cameron, to work on this story. This is like Terminator 2 James Cameron. Mm-hmm. He was going to have Electro and Sandman as his villains. And he's actually the first to introduce the idea of the organic web shooters, which, you know, that's that, that's an interesting element here. 
Arnold Schwarzenegger as Dr. Octavius, Edward Furlong as Peter Parker. Um, it was going to be a little more like hard PG-13. It was going to have be heavy on the profanity and actually featured a sex scene on top of the Brooklyn Bridge between Peter and Mary Jane. Like They were going to push the envelope a little bit and it wasn't going to be as kid-friendly. This all fell through because, as we know, Cutthroat Island killed Corelco yep. and Marvel went... They both went bankrupt in 1996. Okay, so you need to you need to pour yourself a shot at this point and really pay attention because it's going to get insane. Yeah, the story takes a turn here. So in 1999, Marvel licensed Spider-Man rights to Columbia, but MGM, United Artists at the time, claimed that they still own the rights to, to Spider-Man as some subsidiary. So, obvious legal issues. MGM, United Artists Chief Executive John Kelly moved to Columbia Pictures and... We got to switch to another franchise because in the late 50s, early 60s, Ian Fleming was writing the James Bond books. And in one drunken stupor night, him with a couple buddies, one by the name of Kevin McClory, came up with the idea for Thunderball. This is probably a mistake on Fleming's part because now this Kevin McClory now thinks he owns all the rights to the James Bond franchise, which that's kind of insane. They just settled that in court like maybe a year or two ago. Wow. Like it's been going on for decades. So, familiar with this situation, Kelly announced that Columbia would produce an alternate 007 series based on McClory's material, whatever else he had. Mm. So, think of this. So, Columbia was going to do their own Bond that wasn't Timothy Dalton or Pierce Brosnan. And who owned the Bond rights at that time? It's MGM? MGM United Artists. Yeah, right. And they're going to try and do Spider-Man. Because at the same <laughs> time, MGM's doing Pierce Brosnan Bond, and they want to do their own Spider-Man. So, both of these franchises are going to cannibalize themselves. Right. So... They made a deal. I'm sure it's on paper. I doubt it was like a handshake deal. It's too big to be a handshake. They made a deal that Columbia would stop the threat of Bond and give that sole rights to MGM United Artists if they could do Spider-Man. So Great. Columbia has Spider-Man. They have Bond. The rest is history. One of the reasons we had this movie is because of that ins- uh, that insane guy, and Kevin McClory and the James Bond. So who would have known? Right. Who would have known? Right. And at this point, you're trying to hone in on a director, so the likes of which of Tony Scott, Chris Columbus, Ang Lee, David Fincher all kind of flirted around this, and M. Night Shyamalan. That's crazy. Um, and then finally, it fell on to, to Sam Raimi, who's kind of an unorthodox choice, but I think fits the vein pretty well because he was a pretty big Spider-Man fan on his own, right. and he's actually a huge comic book collector. I think he has like 25000 in his collection. Yeah, He's like a huge fan. Doc Ock was going to be in this movie. They axed that because having a third origin story would have been too much. And thank God he had the restraint to do that. So what a crazy story. And again, talking about the road to just get to 2002 to get to this movie. It's a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. Well, let's add something else to that, too. Mm -hmm. So after the Batman, I'm sorry, after Superman and two pretty good films and two that are not. Yeah. Then we're at a place at this time in comic book cinema where it's not a bankable entity. Mm -hmm. So the Batman franchise cannibalized itself through casting and such and bad stories and, you know, different kind of things. Yes. And so we're a good five, six years without any entries on the screen. Mm -hmm. And Marvel at this point is flat out bankrupt. Mm -hmm. No board games, no apparel. They might have maybe had... The Remnants. No, I don't even know what the hell. Two thousand. I don't even know what. Very few cartoons, if any. Sure. Marvel declares bankruptcy, 
and somehow this is the part of the story that just cr- is crazy to me. Mm-hmm. In the entire canon of Marvel characters, mm-hmm. the one they decide on that brings them back from the dead yeah. is Blade. Yeah. Right? So Wesley Snipes, maybe because it's just a vampire mm-hmm. and maybe we're all in the middle of an Anne Rice sort of thing at that time. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So we cast Wesley Snipes' as Blade. At that time, this is pre-going to jail for tax evasion. Wesley Snipes, <laughs> yes. like at the height of his powers. Yeah, exactly. And that franchise gets launched. And that movie brings Marvel back from the dead. I got to tell you a story. Yeah. So Wizard Comic Book Magazine mm-hmm. had a tip in it. So like in this point in my life, I'm a very, very small time stock investor right yeah and it says marvel's just declared chapter 13 you should consider investing in marvel because what do you have to lose at under two dollars a share so i did and i got ahead of that and i made a pretty nice chunk of change on marvel stock i know people don't want to hear stock tips from the early 2000s (laughs) and late 90s yeah but to say today that marvel which is a huge part of the Disney empire and drives, I'm going to be honest, drives mm-hmm. most cinematic choices yeah. for the entire year mm-hmm. for all Disney movies yeah. and theme parks mm-hmm. and uh, accessories, games, yeah. that that was bankrupt yeah. and it's Blade. Yeah. Okay, so that goes back to what I was sort of saying earlier in the flight. The fact that this had even made the screen is shocking yeah. because it's Blade 1, mm-hmm. Blade 2, the X-Men, Blade 3, that's forgettable. Yeah. X2, right? And then Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Maybe Spider-Man before X2. Yeah. But it's it, uh, pretty close to like numerically or chronologically in that, in that sequence. Yeah, so here's what happened. So Blade kind of Blade, brought Jesse. it back from you the... You just said Blade. Blade brought it back from the ashes. X-Men got one of their bigger properties off the ground. So that got them thinking. And Spider-Man just blew the doors off the barn. Like Biggest opening weekend to date ever yeah. at that time. At that time. I think you said it's still fifth all time? It's... Superhero-wise, it sold the fifth most tickets after Infinity War, Black Panther, Avengers, and Dark Knight. Like, that's crazy. That's huge. Yeah. Absolutely huge. So at that point, then everyone's off to the races because now it, superheroes are now a bankable property after this opening. And you know we get some okay stuff and then some kind of crap stuff in there. Yeah. And then Marvel Studios, that's another story for... We'll maybe save that for the end game discussion. Yeah. But then that's all because of this too. Like... If Spider-Man's a bomb, do they even continue? No. Yeah. Okay, if Spider-Man's a bomb, no. If Blade, Mm -hmm. which the failure rate in Blade is about 98% Blade. I mean, you kind of bagged on Doctor Strange a little while ago as far as, you know, B to maybe C list. If Doctor Strange is B minus to C plus list, what's Blade? Going C to D? Maybe. Is he there with Quasar? Yeah, and Morbius and Ghost Rider. And Dazzler. Jesus, right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So the the sort of serendipitous route that this took mm-hmm. kind of falls. And then if you really want to be honest with it, yeah. the fact that we even have a Spider-Man is a one-off final comic. Yeah. It's truly a blessed yeah. franchise. Yeah. And I'm not saying divinely orchestrated by the powers that be above and the good Lord. I'm just saying... Yeah. There is so much that should have not occurred to get what is, I'm going to argue, one of the five, maybe three greatest fiction characters of all time. I'm sure we have Han Solo's in there for me, but but, but we'll do that another day. He totally deserves to be in the competition. Right? He's in that. Yes. And it almost never happened multiple times. Mm -hmm. So crazy. Yeah. So, you know, getting back to the story. Oh, yeah, the story. Yeah, the story. The the, the real story and the, the plot... 
so Peter's got these spider abilities, and I think Dunn, you know, we, we ragged on Shazam last week for, like, being so in love with, like, trying to show the abilities. This film streamlines it really well. You know, we get, you know, the, the web, the spider sense with this fight with Flash Thompson, crawling on the wall, using the web for the first time, like, all in the span about five minutes, like, really quick. And then from that, he clicks, well, I could use this to cash in, which this is just ripped from Amazing Fantasy 15. And he does it the same way through wrestling. Right. So if he pins um, in the combo, it's Crusher Hogan. And this one is Bonesaw McGraw. Isn't that uh, <laughs> the Macho Man? Randy Savage, yes. Rest his soul. Yes. Uh, if he beats him in three in three minutes, he wins $3,000. Not bad. You know, Peter's never seen that amount of money in his Why entire life. Why does he want the money? To go buy a car to impress Mary Jane. So it's rooted in selfishness. Oh, and it gets to the basis of why he's so relatable. Yeah. How many of us have thought, looking at that girl, speaking yeah. to my, my my guys out there, yeah. and you, mm-hmm. how did he get her? Mm-hmm. It's got to be the car. How do I get the car? I make money. Like, that is so infinitely grounded in common human interaction. The brilliance of Stan mm-hmm. Lee to do that. Yeah. Keep going. And before he goes, though, Uncle Ben's kind of giving him a pep talk because he kind of notices his nephew being a little different, a little odd, and... Gives him that forewarning that, you know, whatever you're dabbling into, you know, you're starting fights, like whatever. These are the years where a man's going to become who he's destined to be. Like, remember, Peter, with great power comes great responsibility. Mm. And Peter kind of just like throws it back at him in kind of a really awful way. Yeah. But he doesn't realize this is the last time he's really going to speak to Uncle Ben. Like, and that's tragic. Like, that, that really hurts me, like, thinking about that. This is This is it for them. So from there to the wrestling match... We get a great cameo by Bruce Campbell, who showed up in all three of these. He's Sam Raimi's childhood buddy. Been making movies for years. Mm-hmm. And he gives it, I love how he gives him the name because he's like, what's your name, kid? The Human Spider. The Human Spider? That's it? That's the best you got? Oh, that sucks. <laughs> you amazing Spider-Man. Like, that's a cool, that's cool. That's awesome. Yeah. It's better than Han Solo. What's your name? Han. Uh, or your Solo. Oh, Han. Solo. Fuck that movie. You hate that, man. Oh, that's dumb. Like, no, okay. <laughs> it kills me. This is a cool way to get your name. And he's all kind right. of like, he got my name wrong. That's not my name. Right. <laughs> so, of course, he he beats, I keep on the come Crusher Hogan. He beats Bonesaw McGraw. Yep. And then another twist of fate. The guy doesn't want to pay him the money. He's going to give him 100 bucks because he pinned him in two. He didn't last the full three minutes. Right. So then in comes some armed robber. Who's going to take all the rest of those winnings. And he comes running past Peter. And Peter with like one hand could like destroy this man. Yep. Instead he does the most selfish thing he's ever going to do in his entire life. And it's the basis of why I love this character so much. Yep. He chooses not to stop him. He chooses not to stop him. Because he's not going to let people order him around anymore. Like he's let Flash Thompson Bob bully him around. Yep. And he's let every element of his life bully him around. Yep. And then it happens. And... What's the cause of that? Uncle Ben shot. He chases after the guy. Finds out it's the guy he could have stopped. Yep. And from that moment on, I think those words ring as true as they ever could. With great power comes great responsibility. The weight of that decision to choose not to do anything to save this man who is so important in your life. And then dealing with the ramifications of that going forward. Yeah, there's no end mm-hmm. to the insurmountable amount of regret that you're going to have to sort of come up to you know, mm-hmm. get past on that. And I think expertly portrayed and performed by Tobey Maguire. Now there's in the, in comic book dumb, 
there's such a debate on who's the best Spider-Man actor or who's the best to have played it. Right. And I think they all play different iterations of the character. You know, you know, Toby's playing a version from the 60s, 70s and 80s, which is what Raimi was a fan of. Yep. You know, Andrew Garfield, maybe more of the ultimate version, this kind of, you know... Oh, yeah, well said, yeah. Yeah, and then Tom Holland's kind of like an amalgamation of a little bit of everything. Yeah. But I think because we see this moment, and we see the relationship they built up between him and Uncle Ben, I think the sympathy through him comes true even more. And when he can't get those wins, when he can't get the girl, he can't be with the girl... He can't tell Harry the truth. Mm-hmm. He can't tell Aunt May the truth. Mm-hmm. I think it really weighs down on him to the point in the second film where he's like, I can't be this character anymore. Right. I have to give it up because I want a life for myself. Expertly, like, this is a sympathetic Peter Parker that in order for Spy- the this, this Spider-Man character to work, I think you have to buy Peter Parker. And I buy this one a little bit more than the other two. I agree with you. Yeah. Maybe it's because that's the first one that I saw. Mm-hmm. I just think... Tobey Maguire has the forgotten everyman mm-hmm. that certainly the Andrew Garfield character didn't even pretend to address. Yeah. But also the one that, you know, mm-hmm. I think Tom Holland's there. Mm-hmm. Um, but even he didn't, we got in late with his iteration. Right. We didn't get his Uncle Ben moment. Right. So I think because we saw all of this, like he has, Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man has a more complete arc mm-hmm. in these first two and a half films. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. 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 So he dons the moniker of Spider-Man and he's not going to let Uncle Ben like die in vain. So he's going to use these powers for good. But oh, so surmountable as we talked about in our flight. He Not only does he have a goblin to take down, but he created an even bigger enemy in J. Jonah Jameson. Boy. Whose life goal is to just trash Spider-Man. Like he can never see the good that he does because he's got to spin it for his papers for monetary gain. Right. How can you win? Like, you know, when Batman goes out and solves, like, he's a hero. Superman's a hero. Iron Man's a hero. And Spider-Man does it. He's a villain. All, like, that whole, like, three or four years of Spider-Man crime fighting, he gets a guy, he defeats the guy, but then Jameson spins it away and, like, the public just hates him. Yeah. He can never win. Well, Jameson runs, essentially, a New York tabloid. Yeah, the Daily Bugle. Right? So, it is salacious by nature. And what's a better way to sell... Man, it harkens back to a time right now and the profitability of news, fake news, or otherwise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's put this out there and make it shocking. Yeah. And if everyone loves Spider-Man and I present, I'm the first person to recognize he's this menace. Yes. But here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Peter doesn't want to present himself that way, but he has no choice because aside from the money to get the car to get the girl, he needs money just to survive. Yeah. And here's the other part that's really intriguing about this. Yeah. Okay, so as we continue... And we're watching the creation of the monster that J. J Jonah Jameson wants to show Spider-Man as. And the necessity for Peter to keep that gig for money. We also get surrogate father. Who's loaded. Yeah. Which obviously is a means to an end financially. And then... Let me mention something real quick. There's, There's a line Peter says. And when I watched it this time, you know, now that I'm in adulthood and I have a job. And like, you know, I'm working all the time now. I'm grown up. There's a line in there where... Norman's like Peter's looking for jobs and he's like oh photographer and Norman's like hey I could I can I can make a few calls I can make it happen and I I would probably say yes please Norman get me an internship at Oscorp but Peter doesn't want to go that way he says no I want to I want to make it on my own and but that's the humility of of Spider-Man like he he's not used to being 
babied and pampered like Harry has been his whole life. He came from nothing, an orphan with his parents living with his aunt and uncle who they were poor on their own. He's not used to that type of treatment. Look, man, he's a guy that's been raised on apple pie and meatloaf. Yeah. And like someone that's heart and soul like that isn't going to have his buddy call in favors. Although the rest of the world will do that, Mm -hmm. it creates a baseline of morality that Spider-Man has that we won't. And you know what that causes in us Mm -hmm. is admiration and ascension to the same sort of moral compass that we like. And that's another brilliance Mm -hmm. in this. It's two lines. It's two lines in the movie, but it speaks yards to the character. Look, brother, like with great power comes great responsibility is one line. Mm -hmm. And it's defined superheroes for generations. Who is Spider-Man? He's a criminal. That's who he is. A vigilante. A public menace. What's he doing on my front page? Mr. Jameson, your wife is on line one. She needs to know if you... Mr. Jameson, this is a page six problem. We have a page one problem. Shut up. Right. Well, he's news. They're really important clients. They can't wait. They're about to. He pulled six people off that subway car. Sure, from a wreck he probably caused. Something goes wrong and this creepy crawler is there. Look at that. He's fleeing the scene. What's that tell you? He's not fleeing. He's probably going to save somebody else. He's a hero. Then why does he wear a mask? Hmm? What's he got to hide? She just needs to know if you want the chintz or the chanel in the dining room. Whichever one's cheaper. So Peter and Harry have moved into the city post high school graduation, but Harry's not really telling him that he's actually currently dating Mary Jane, which that's a bit of a thorn in the side too. Like Harry, dude, he like just backstabbed me. Right. Like this was my girl that I've loved since like kindergarten. Yep. And now you're with her. But alas, through some action sequences and things, Mary Jane's kind of taking for the masked webhead here at this point. And, you know, Peter can't really, he doesn't want to step on his friend's shoes. He's going to let it play out, whatever happens may be. But, you know, you know, Norman kind of sees this as, as a weakness. And, you know, he's going to start attacking Peter through his heart, through Aunt May and Mary Jane. Mm-hmm. And in a moment I really like when, you know, they're in the burning apartment building and, you know, they kind of have the, you know, their, their, their physical and he's trying to get him on his side. He's like, Peter, you like Spider-Man don't bother saving them. Cause they're just going to end up hating you. Like no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, join up with me and I'll, I'll reward you and we can take this city by the thorns and this and that. Well, Spider-Man doesn't want that, but then it hits close to home. And I love that moment of him. He's hanging to his ceiling and the blood trickles off his arm and oh, like yeah. Norman almost sees it. Oh yeah. And we kind of like and then he goes for Thanksgiving and he sees the cut on his arm and it's the moment he's like Oh God damn it, like why did it have to be you? Yep. Yeah. So well done by Willem Dafoe, who by the way is an Academy Award winning actor, right? For Platoon? No, nominated. Okay, nominated. Like seven times. <laughs> damn, really? Mm-hmm. Wow. I did not know that. Seven, huh? Seven or six, like it might be four. I'm I'm probably exaggerating, but like a lot. Like the guy's a great actor. Like I I, I like him, and you can see it because his face just shows it. Like, oh my gosh, you're the one that I've been fighting. Yes, you're like the son that I liked. Mm-hmm. You're not this golden spoon up your ass that my son is, which he raised. But yeah, instead it's done in like so. Basically, what you're telling me is is uh, Willem Dafoe is the Irene Dunn of. Yeah. <laughs> exactly of male actors yes right? he realizes now i've got to go against you so and me- so and he like it's funny about that because i want to specifically talk about that that dinner scene mm-hmm. think about the dinner scene too couple of kids grandma dad it essentially is this makeshift family that 
is shrouded in the revelation of what's really happening and secrecy that mm-hmm. blows it up. Yeah. Again, to that idea, yeah. Peter just can't... Like, anyone in New York could be the Green Goblin. Yeah. It's got to be you, Norman. Yes. This man I admire who you admire... Like, damn! Mm-hmm. Again, Peter cannot get ahead. Yes. Yep. So another interesting thing to talk about, maybe at this point too, like maybe it's a blessing, again, talking about blessings in this film, that Spider-Man didn't happen in the 80s or 90s because technology just certainly was not there yet. Like in order to make like the moniker for Superman was you will believe a man can fly. They had to figure out how to make it believable. Otherwise, the movie's going to suck. Right. Same thing here. If we can't believe that Spider-Man can swing through the city, swing through the cityscapes... The movie's dead. Mm-hmm. Absolutely dead. So I think technology had to catch up to, you know, 2000, 2001 to, like, make it moderately believable. It might not have aged as well, but, like, I, that was a big moment, too. Be able to see a computer-generated Spidey, yeah, crawl, swing. Because a human can't really do that. Like, yep. it's impossible. I remember reading a review from this movie before I went to say by Roger Ebert, of all people. Okay. And essentially what he said is he hated the swinging sequences because there was no volume to the way Parker looked or Spider-Man looked as he was swinging because it was all computer created. Yeah. What a crock of shit. Yeah. I think at some point Roger Ebert had just seen so many films he didn't even know his ass from a hole in the well, He hated, started hating like everything. Or And, and then loving whoever invited him to the best pre-launch party. You can see... Vid- it's just like, really? You can always see videos online. He notoriously also hated horror films like... Yeah. All the time. Just pretentious. but Or just overwrought with too much film and self mm-hmm. um, importance but I'm watching that movie having read that review thinking like no that's what a person would look like when they yeah swung through the city and again I'll give you what you said in 2019 maybe it doesn't look as tight as it sure, did sure yeah but it's still better than a lot of the stuff that's out there now yeah right mm-hmm. so yeah to to make because Spider-Man's not going to just like book it up the street to fight the villain like there's no way yeah. you do that and that was actually one of the things I think that Cameron said was the big challenge is going to be how are we going to rig this so that we mm. can swing this guy? Yeah. Um, okay, so Raimi figured it out. And then let me also mention to it, this is another reason why I like this iteration, this trilogy of films, because you read the comics, you see the cartoons, like Spider-Man lives between the buildings swinging through them. Like that swinging through New York is, New York is just much a character as any of these other people were mentioning. Yeah. And I think that's something missing from, not to bag on Tom Holland, I think he plays a pretty good Spider-Man too. When did he swing through cityscapes in Spider-Man Homecoming? He he sat on a, on a, on a subway train and it took him from this to that. And you're right, I didn't even realize that. Like is that, there a swing sequence? There I, really isn't, is there? Not through New York cityscapes unless you count him swinging through the plane at the end of the movie. Like that that element is missing and that's that's part of Spider-Man. Like that's how he gets around. Yeah. I think that's expertly showed too in that PlayStation 4 game by Spider-Man like it no doubt. beautifully shown. Yep. So I wanted to ask you Matt because Spider-Man's had so many costumes between like armpit armpit webs and black suit and yeah. <laughs> so many iterations. What do you think of this Spider-Man suit on film like Raimi's version of the suit? Oh, I love it. Yeah. I think it's like the raised webbing on the on the arms. Yeah, I do cuz what it gave me is sort of a sense of of traction. Mhm. Um, I know that he has little follicles that will come out of his skin that allow him to adhere, like, yeah, yeah. and adhere into ability to walls and such. Mm-hmm. But the the raised rubber um, webbing on that created, uh, I don't want to say a shell, but 
a sticky mm-hmm. traction, like the bottom of a brand new pair of Nikes was what he was wearing over his. I really thought it looked cool. Yeah, it looked cool and cool on film. And I think the organic web shooter actually freed up a pretty big problem of Peter not only... Refilling his web fluid. Refilling the web fluid at the most inopportune moments, which is like every other page of the comic book. And yeah. um, like, how is he like... I know he's a, a he's smart, but like that's a pretty ingenious thing to kind of come up with. Like that solved a lot of problems. And I know fans give that one a hard plaque. Not, Why? Not for me though. No, me either. Uh, that actually simplifies the story. Much, yeah. Do you really want to watch him? No, I put uh, right. It's like when the cop shows up in a slasher horror film. And you're like, just hurry up and get here so you can't do anything and die, so we can get on with the story. Exactly. That's the web shooter, like empty cartridge Perfect. element. So let's get into the end of this movie because Norman's now go- he's made uh, peace with Harry, saying, "I haven't always been there for you as a father. Like I'm going to make it right because." You know, Peter can't be that surrogate son anymore, so he's going after him. His heart attacks Aunt May, kidnaps Mary Jane, and we get this showdown on the Queens Queensboro Bridge, I believe. Mm-hmm. This sequence, for the most part, other than characters dying, is very eerily similar to the night Gwen Stacy died, um, which is maybe arguably your favorite comic in all of comic history i might take you one step further yeah the death of gwen stacy might be my favorite piece of fiction that's ever been written if oh. you've ever sat down and actually read that mm-hmm. it is written as a absolute masterpiece yeah. we'll talk so about on a cross of 10 to proud men die like are you kidding me yeah Come we'll talk on, we'll talk about that more next week but we kind of get the bridge element here with let die the women you love or suffer the little children. And, you know, Peter's got to make the choice. And obviously he can't let either of them die. Like, And then in, I think a, mo- a moment that's like just so understated, like you got to go back to 2002. Like New York is like a year removed from September 11th. And again, as I mentioned, New York's just as much a character as Uncle Ben, Aunt May, Peter, Harry as they are. And you get this great moment of New York fighting back against the Goblin to give Spider-Man enough time to save both of them. I think a pretty powerful moment yeah. for New York at the time, but also to show them as a character in this film. Mm-hmm. Again, something the other films in the franchise like seem to forget. Yeah. Yeah, so... You know, we get this final confrontation. I, I got I to gotta confess to you, too, also. like I read the novelization for this film before the film's release. Oh. And this end sequence on the bridge and in the garden, like I was reading it and I was having the hardest time visualizing like what it looked like. Sure. So when I saw the movie, I was like, oh my God, I was like, what the hell was I thinking? (laughs) I still have that. I have that book somewhere around here. (laughs) And uh, so we get this final confrontation in uh, this greenhouse, this cool, like just, they're just fisticuffs at this point. Yeah. And, you know, he's he's going to just, like, he's got to kill Peter at this point. Like, if he's going to be the goblin that terrorizes New York, he's got to get rid of the one thing that's going to stop him. That's Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. And then it's at this point when Spider-Man realizes that it's Norman. And, you know, he's pierced by his own glider. And I love the last line that he delivers to him. He's like, Peter, don't tell Harry. Yeah. Which becomes a linchpin for, you know, the rest of the franchise. And, uh, you know, the goblin's gone. And I'm glad we only had Goblin in this movie because this movie had a lot to like do origin, you know, become Spider-Man, set up a Goblin. Like to have another villain in that. Oh, good God. Like, so by the time that the Goblin's impaled on his own glider, which mm-hmm. obviously is paying homage to the original Norman Osborn's mm-hmm. death, although been reincarnated multiple times since. Mm-hmm. 
you know, Peter's mask is pretty much destroyed yeah. from the battle that they've had mm -hmm. in that sequence. Okay, to the idea Peter can't catch a break. Mm -hmm. He, you know, Jimmy's Norman free from the Goblin Glider yeah. and carries him in to their house. Christ-like. Didn't he look like kind of oh, like there's Jesus wrapped in a shawl like for after sure. being crucified? Yes. It's funny because Norman actually played Jesus or Willem Dafoe in The Last, Last Temptation, Temptation of Christ. No, yeah. right, exactly. When he's laying I, I thought that this time. I was like, that's an interesting image there. And then no sooner does he lay him down and he's dead, then Harry comes in mm -hmm. and you get that reveal where Harry sees like, wait a minute, my dad's dead. Spider-Man is you, Peter. And not only has Peter lost his father. Well, he doesn't know he's Peter at this point. That's in the second oh, film. Oh, oh, you're right. Oh, oh you're right. You're, he just sees Spider-Man and is like, what have you done? That's right. That's right. That's yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. now, okay. Yeah. So Peter in that moment has still the point still the same. Yeah. He's lost the ability to be honest with the person who next to Mary Jane and Aunt May is the most important. His brother. Mm -hmm. Because if he tells him like, look, dude, I'm Spider-Man. Then Harry obviously puts the pieces together and says... Oh, you're Spider-Man and you killed can't win for losing. It come, becomes a problem for sure. So now Peter is is troubled with I think what's a lot of the legacy of Spider-Man, and mm -hmm. that's I can't be honest about who I am because it jeopardizes all the people that I love. Yeah. And again, so every time you put on the mask and you're saving this guy. It's denying who you are and driving you further and further away from the people you're closest to. Mm -hmm. And like how many times in the comics mm -hmm. did Peter have to leave some intimate encounter with Mary Jane because something happened and out the window he goes. And Mary Jane, Liz Allen, Betty Brand, Gwen like, Stacy. All of them. Like, right? he could, just, yeah, all of them. He's like, oh, I had to stand you up on a date because like Mysterio is just like raining down on Captain New York. Captain Stacy, the same thing. Yeah. So... It's just it's I think it's a very consistent through line in mm -hmm. the in the franchise, movie wise and comic wise, that no matter what this dude does, he is never gonna catch a break. Mm -hmm. And with great power comes great responsibility. And I think that's the curse. That's the curse of being Spider Man. Well you took the words right of mouth. It makes you give pause and think, is Spider Man a gift or is it a curse? And quite frankly, it's a curse. And that's why the second film is so brilliant because that sentence you just said is the theme of that movie. Is it a gift or is it a curse? And it's Peter wrangling with either decision. We play that out. You and me have played that out. Mm -hmm. If you could have one, what would it be and what would you do? And the truth is, it would be awful. And yeah. I, I think that's also, mm -hmm. this goes to another superhero. That goes back to Unbreakable for me. Yeah. It's why I like Unbreakable so much. Mm -hmm. Is It's a look at that very dynamic. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so like, okay, let's finish up the, the story here and then we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up. Yeah, so they have the funeral bit and, you know, Harry's like, well, thank, thank God that you're still here. I lost my father. Spider-Man's going to pay. Like, I swear he's going to pay. Mary Jane confesses her love. Like, she's like, Peter, no matter like what I was there, like you were, you've always, you've been there for me. And, you know, when I was swinging up there, I thought it was you with me. And, you know, she kisses him and he's got to say no. And as hard as it is, it's everything he's ever wanted in his entire life, more than anything. But he realizes after what the goblin did to Aunt May and to her, that if anyone else shows up, and oh boy, are people going to show up, it's prime target. It's prime like fodder for that villain. And he has to say no. And that's got to be about a harder decision as he's ever made in his entire life. Well, and again, to the same thing, because she's, because Mary Jane has kissed. 
Spider-Man mm-hmm. in a very famous rain sequence upside down, the upside down kiss. That is a pretty iconic sequence. Isn't it? Yes, right? It is. So she knows what Spider-Man feels like in that regard. And then she kisses Peter and it's very similar. Then she realizes like, hey, he's, I mean, it's pretty clear to me that she's snapped. Like, wait a minute. He's him. Yeah. Again, the same thing as Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. I can't be with the people that I care about. Yeah. And you could make the case the whole opus or genesis of Spider-Man is to get Mary Jane. Yeah. And now that he's become Spider-Man, she's even more unattainable than she was when I didn't know her as my next door neighbor. And again, one more to, to sort of yeah. reiterate the same thing we've said for the last couple of minutes here. The curse of that, that, that position. Mm-hmm. Come clean. Maybe it works out, maybe it doesn't, but it still doesn't change anything. Exactly. I think all these that are all chess pieces that are setting up what the eventual sequel will be, but setting them up brilliantly. Because, as we'll argue, and then I'll get into my ratings, the second film like takes all the same ideas we talked about here, but shoots it into the stratosphere thematically. Like, so I have to say something too, because you know we just finished talking about Stephen King. Yeah, and I think we both sort of said this is a, a fantastic icon of American fiction. Mm-hmm. I would argue, and I really do mean this, mm-hmm. when you consider the totality of Stanley's portfolio, yeah. I think he's the most prolific writer mm-hmm. in American history. Oh yeah, especially if you look at now from A to Z, oh, yeah. and like the, the this story that we're talking about about a silly boy that gets bitten by a radioactive spider during the Cold War era, and our fear of what nuclear yeah. fallout would be. Been around for sixty plus years, but still rooted in like. Base common problem shows the brilliance of Stanley as a writer. Now yeah. you could talk about him as a businessman later, and we can get into that. I don't want to, but as a writer. But even even man. even the X Men too. This group of mutants that are born with their powers that are segregated from society. Yeah, it's totally civil rights movement. In, in sixty three, like that's yeah, that's that's groundbreaking. But but, what about the Hulk? It's the same thing. Like you look at it mm-hmm. from a, from an era that like all of them bred really good fiction yeah, or really yeah. good pros yeah because of the things that were going on in the world stan lee had an ability a god-given ability to have a lineup that includes fantastic four and then to like the hulk to then spider-man to iron man to reinventing thor from norse mythology to daredevil do i need to keep going because like i know he he came up with all of these things and you know the other thing too about it jesse yeah although the the franchise has never come to an end per se as the story is over Mm -hmm. who tells a better ending stan lee or stephen king uh lee for sure by a mile yeah yeah okay so that's just my little rant on that excellent so we get one final spectacular swinging sequence through the city the film ends and we are we walk to the parking lot with uh chad kroger's voice of hero leading us through that's what you laughing at? That's my ringtone. I do. I hate Nickelback. Like I, I hate. I hate. Um, here's a qu- here's a question for you. We're a little off the cuff right now, but like, would you rather have? Would you rather have Chad Kroger or Scott Stapp? Can I put in Smash Mouth? <laughs> Can I put in jumping off a building? Like, yeah, that's pretty tough. Jesus. Uh, no, Chad Kroger by a mouth. Scott Stapp is incorrigible. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Fuck you, Creed. So I think now more than ever, Matt, how would you rate and grade Spider-Man? And let me just get in. I'll, I'll do this every episode, but our ratings are Rock Gut, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. It's Top Shelf. This movie set a baseline and a standard for superhero films that drive the entire industry. Now, there's four of them in my opinion. It's the first Superman. Okay. 
it's Burton's first Batman, it's Blade, it's Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Those four films. Now, mm-hmm. I know people, what about the Avengers? Because that's the first team-up movie. And I think that's fair. You could maybe put that in there. But think... again, the Avengers as a totality is a piece, uh, like the combination of a bunch of origin stories sort of put together. For me, it's it's top shelf. I know it hasn't aged as well as it could, but you can't tell me that that movie is not watchable today. Yeah, It's cast brilliantly, and I have my issue with Kirsten Dunst, but even she's still mostly okay. Yeah. Um, I can watch it over and over again. It holds a nostalgic place for me. Um, and it gave Marvel the power to be what Marvel is. This is mm-hmm. pre-buyout by Disney. This is like, there are Marvel characters rock walking around Disneyland and California Adventures, Jesse. Yeah. We're going to have such a good time. Mm-hmm. Like you and me are getting a picture with Spider-Man. Yeah. Me and Jesse are going to Disneyland, by the way. Yeah. Um, top shelf and it's not even a question it's not going to be in my top 10 of all time yeah but it is such a landmark film yeah you know landmark is is quite a definition because you know there's a few like you mentioned them you like richard donner's superman made it viable that comic books could be made into film yeah tim burton's batman showed the merchandising capability yep and like what like that property could have, even down to the the music. Yes, like Bat Dance is fucking awful. But like that's the Prince, Prince that, 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 that album sold millions of copies, millions. Yeah. And Bat Dance blows, but that's not right. Mm-hmm. Okay, keep going. Spider Man, I think, was the linchpin that showed that DC was the only one that was like a power player, and you know Blade and the X Men. But Spider Man really, for me, showed that Marvel could be a bankable property with their characters. Yep. Without this film, there's no Endgame. There's no Infinity War. There's no Iron Man. Like, if this is a bomb, I think, you know, we have maybe some Batmans or a failed attempt at Superman. But, like, man, we might not even have a Christopher Nolan Batman universe if this film's a bomb. Well, I mean, mean, think about it as far as the DC goes for the the homage that it should pay to Spider-Man. Yeah. The swinging sequences through the city Mm -hmm. are really tough to shoot. Mm -hmm. I think it inspires DC... To take on water and Aquaman and like yeah. whatever that movie was, yeah. I'm not get into that. Yeah, but that's a pretty ambitious endeavor to undertake. Yeah, and the like, no one's gonna say the problem with Aquaman is the water. Like, Spider-Man defined like if you're gonna do the special effects and superheroes, by God, you better get it right, and yep. you better turn to ash, or you better swing from the cities, mm-hmm. the rooftops. You better like, and yeah. that to me yeah. is is so important yeah so i'm i think i'm gonna rate it at i won't go as high as top shelf but i'll go single barrel i i understand and i just said the importance of this movie and where it stands in film history and specifically in this genre Mm -hmm. um i think spider-man like to me the second film is like yards above this film no argument for me no argument so i think spider-man had room to grow but this is a fantastic entry in the franchise for a franchise that's going to see some pretty dark days. Yeah. But uh, very important for its casting, its direction, its ability to get lifted off the ground, its story, its themes, its box office, its potential. Yeah, this it's it's a very important film in film in film history. Like I'll just say that right now. Like, no question. Yeah, this in my lifetime, from 1989 until now. This has been an event film in my lifetime. Okay, so let me give you one more thing about this. Mm-hmm. 
Like we talk about Jaws as far as the onset of summer blockbuster. Yeah. And timing is everything. Mm-hmm. Isn't Spider-Man of its time yes, yes. the Jaws? It is. It totally. Yeah. It's the Jaws of the superhero genre. Right. Yeah, an event film. Like I in my lifetime, I think there's been maybe like five or six event films. Jurassic Park, Titanic, Spider-Man, The Dark Knight, Avenger. Like there there has number 7 and 6 days from now. Yeah. There there hasn't been a lot of like movies that like become part of the you know, the collective like zeitgeist of society those well are said. some of them this is this is definitely one of them right especially a post 9-11 new york city like this is a very important movie for that as well the other thing too that's really fascinating to me about this is that this <clears throat> movie's apex yeah let's say the third spider-man yeah toby Maguire's star power yeah and then the precipitous fall from grace mm-hmm. and i'm just gonna back it up because just again, I don't know the guy, but yeah. from everything I've read and seeing the movie Molly's Game, because yeah. if you haven't seen Molly's Game, yeah. the celebrity in that movie is Tobey Maguire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like how quickly you can be here and how quickly it can all go away. Yeah. Like he's literally playing the most coveted part in Hollywood yeah. during Spider Man 1, 2, and 3 mm-hmm. to what was the last thing he would. I couldn't tell. A you. game show? I mean, Great Gatsby? Like. It might have been. Yeah, yeah crazy yeah totally crazy so don't gamble don't gamble that's the moral of the the podcast story Mm -hmm. okay so let's wrap it up with the nightcap i'm gonna pour myself a little bit more of the 1792 so last week we talked about the best live at uh live at live action iterations of superheroes you know you chose incredible hulk and i talked about daredevil and 66 batman so let's flip the switch a bit best animated superhero show matt the one I grew up with, Spider-Man and his amazing friends. <laughs> yes. Iceman and Firestorm. Yes, yes. Okay, I know that, like, what that did really mm-hmm. well is it gave you a really nice, broad look at the rogues gallery for Spider-Man. Yes. Look, Firestorm's ridiculous, and it's sort of weird to team him up with, like, a real X-Men, and maybe someday I would be an X-Men if I was ever even in Marvel Marvel's canon. Yeah. But everybody got introduced in there, and I gotta tell, like, for all of the things that that is now, yeah. it's drawn beautifully. Yeah, I, there's something about 80s animation that I really love. And there's a, I'm not sure what the name of the episode is, but there's an episode in there where I think it's the Red Skull okay. collects a whole bunch of like Marvel heroes Mm -hmm. and puts them through a bunch of individual trials. And it is so good because at that time, unless you were at the comic book store all the time and I wasn't because we'd have the money to buy me comics every week Mm -hmm. um, or the desire to take Matt to the comic book store. Yeah. 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 Like that to me, I think it was three seasons there's some lame characters and like swarm the B characters, stupid, (laughs) but it's also really important to, understanding and keeping a connection with Mm spider-man that was every saturday and like i i know the themes uh, the 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 theme sounds like boom 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 and they they're there in their little lair and they got like a poster of the incredible hulk on their yeah i mean it's shameless marketing for marvel's sure sure a, a very close second. I hope I'm not stepping on your fingers. Oh, yeah, go your ahead. With this, go ahead. Is the X Men series from mm-hmm. the '90s? Like that was the first four seasons. The fifth one got to be pretty stupid, but that did also an equally good job of introducing what is an impossibly large library of characters very well. And the thing that's great about that series, again, mm-hmm. it doesn't beat Spider Man for me, but it's close. Yeah, is that each of the seasons in animation 
had an overriding theme and it was story inside the theme. Days of Future Past, right. the Phoenix Saga, right. the Savage Land. Right. Oh yeah, you're right. Well yeah. done. Night of the Sentinels. Yeah, Night two. of the Sentinels. Yep. I think that's the opening episode. Episode. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so yeah, Spider-Man was... and his amazing friends. <laughs> I do really. I, I I love 80s animation. Like, I'm, it's I'm, good, I'm, isn't I'm, it? I'm, I, I can't technically be called a child of the, of the 80s because I was born in the last year of it. So I'm more of a child of the 90s, but... Those G.I. Joe and those shows, like I, oh man, He Man. I I, I I like that Ninja Turtles. Like oh. I love that stuff. Yeah, but man, would it be sacrilegious if I didn't pick Batman the animated series? No, of course not. It's brilliant. Why can you not? Yeah, for a series that really honed in on a really interesting Art Deco design of the Batman universe with a great voice performance by Kevin Conroy as Batman. You got damn near everything in that show. The Joker, Mr. Freeze, which arguably the best episode. Um, What's it called? Frozen Hearts? No, heart, heart, Hearts of, hearts, hearts on Ice, Hearts on Fire. Yeah. One of those things. Yeah. It's an Emmy-nominated Emmy episode. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's hard not to pick. And, you know, Mark Hamill as the Joker is legendary. You know, it's a series that that series introduced Harley Quinn as a character, too. Yeah. Yep. So... I love the, the but my favorite part of it is how they tried to tie it into Burton's universe and part of the theming music in there is actually Danny Elfman's Batman March. How about that? That's a X Men's a very close second. Yeah. I really like the style that that one did. And actually, recently they've done a few interesting like apparently I've never seen it, but the Spectacular Spider Man show they did a few years ago is, actually has a pretty big following. Even like Robert England played the Vulture in. Oh that. wow! Yeah. Has a pretty pretty good following, and I actually saw one. It was the Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes, and damn it, mm-hmm. they they captured you know King and Thanos and Ultron, and they had the entire lineup. The guy that played Iron Man even sounded like Robert Downey Jr. That was a pretty good show too. But you know, one thing that I, I we'd be remiss if we didn't mention, like we both named our famous and like our favorites, and the X Men is on our list. The one that before my daughter was sort of old enough to really even kind of understand heroes that she really liked was the justice league series um, oh yes yeah the rebooted justice league yeah what yeah. was that like justice oh, league unlimited or yeah yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. that was actually really just too brief yeah and then i have to give you one more and like we talk about it in my family a lot the superhero squad although completely the comedic su- the super and- friends no, no, no. The superhero squad. Oh. Like the little squad. They're like, it's a Marvel take on the Avengers okay. that's comedic. Damn, it's pretty good, dude. Like, but it, it's not it's yeah. not hard hitting action. It's more yeah. kind of like Teen Titans y and sort of the the theme. Sure. But we miss the squaddies all the time in my house. You got I got I gotta mention Super Friends too and, and Ted Knight. Form of a bucket of water. And yeah, Ted Knight as the narrator, who if you don't know Ted Knight, he played he played Judge Smalls in Caddyshack. Yeah. He was the narrator in Super Friends. Meanwhile at the Legion of Doom, like that's great like voice. It, it's so great. Challenge like, of the Super Friends. That why, was so good. Why the hell didn't like the first Justice League focus on the Legion of Doom like? Why dude? I don't follow like <laughs> cartoons the way we used to. Yeah, yeah. Man, X Men, Justice League Unlimited, Challenge of the Super Friends, Spider Man and his Amazing Friends. Yeah, my future the Batman's. Come on, yeah, my what fu- happened? Yeah, my future kids are like, I gotta buy all this shit on DVD and Blu-ray because, like, what the hell? Like, are they gonna watch? In that Challenge of the Super Friends that you're mentioning with yeah. Ted Knight narrating, did you yeah. ever see? Have you seen all of them? Most of them. The one that's the apocalyptic future where there's people come back and find how the Justice League oh, yes, yes, and yes. the Legion of Doom destroy each other. Yes. Oh my God, come yeah. on. How what, good was that? How did you make that into a movie? Justice League is a film uh, for another day. 
I, that was I never missed that cartoon either. Excellent, excellent. And that form of a bucket of water is the one from the sixties. I thought that's yeah, yeah, the, the wonder, one. the wonder twins. It's yeah, it's legendary in its own right. So excellent. This has been a great episode. I hope you've had fun talking about Spider Man. Loved every minute of it. But alas. For next week's episode, we are staying in the Spider-Verse for actually a fan-picked episode. So if you're a follower on Instagram, you helped vote for this episode that we're reviewing this week. And if you're not following us on Instagram, please do so because we'll do this occasionally. We'll let the the viewers pick the episode. But you had the choice between Batman versus Superman or The Amazing Spider-Man 2. This was the unanimous winner. It kind of wasn't even close. Right. Uh, yeah, we're, we're going to stay here with actually Mark Webb's 2014 film, The Amazing Spider-Man 2. And as excited as I have been for this episode, I'm excited for this episode, but for maybe opposite reasons, I maybe want to talk about more about missed opportunities and yeah. excess might be the definition of this film. I, I don't know if I can say that better. I think you just, you just nailed it. Look, the, that, the truth on this one is we chose this one for fans because we wanted you guys to have a chance to give us some feedback. And we also needed a fourth week in this cast so that we can let everybody see the end game yes. before mm-hmm. we blew it up through the revelation of what it will be on this podcast. Yeah. But I'm also equally excited. And I was really shocked that it was as one-sided for one as the other because mm-hmm. it was Amazing Spider-Man 2 versus uh, Batman versus Superman. Yeah. And it was like 66 to like two thirds yeah. to one third, and I was like, "Have you seen this one too?" Like, <laughs> but I think you and I both agree, though. And this is a bit of a no, yeah. There's a cat out of the bag. Like, there's some defendably good stuff no, in there. Defendably good stuff, but also some defendably bad stuff too. We're gonna talk about all of it. Yeah. So that's coming next week. Um, end games. Yeah, a week away. Like, less when are you than going? When, when are you going? I'm going Thursday night. Okay, we're going Friday, six o'clock. Yeah. So that's coming, and that'll be the final film in this cask. So. You got Amazing Spider-Man 2 coming up, so raise one up, Matt. Raise one up, Jesse. Cheers. Cheers. We got to go. Our spider sense is tingling. There's a crime afoot. (laughs) We got to get to it. It might be Pace Pop Pete. (laughs) I'm going to go rescue Gwen Stacy. Excellent. We'll see you next week. Everybody, have a good week, and we will see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And leave us an email at rysmileproductions at gmail.com. Spider-Man is property of Columbia Pictures, Marvel Enterprises, and Laura Ziskin Productions. And no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time. Cheers. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. Deliver us! Finish it! Finish it!